You don't want to write. You want to be a person who has written. Here's the secret. No one enjoys writing. And I'm not talking about writing, capital W, which includes staring out windows, coming up with ideas, having a book published and out there. There are fun parts to capital W writing. I'm talking about writing, drafting, typey, typey, typey. Okay, some of us enjoy that part. I've met them. They're awesome. I don't understand them, but they're awesome. But most of us, we want to have written. So here is how you go from a person who wants to write to being a person who has written. Write to your strengths. Write in community and have an expert guide around to motivate and teach you what you need to know and only what you need to know. And this is exactly what happens in the Year of Writing Magically workshop. Spaces are available for the 2024 workshop that is 10 months from March to December, where you will be part of a community in which I lead you. I teach you everything you need to know about craft and teach you everything you need to know about discovery, drafting, drawer phase, and revision. I walk you through everything along with a group of people that you will bond with, have an amazing experience with, and I absolutely guarantee you will get more work done on that book than you would have if you had gone it alone. Go to HowStory.Works, click on the Year of Writing Magically workshop. Applications are open until December. All right, now go ahead and listen to the podcast. Welcome to Endless, a Sandman podcast from Chipperish Media. I'm story expert who has done many evil things, but all to preserve Rome, Lonnie Diane Rich. And I'm writer, erstwhile DC Comics editor, and Marmoran poet-turned-raven, Elisa Quitney. Today on Endless, we're going to be talking about Sandman 30, August. August was written by Neil Gaiman, penciled by Brian Talbot, inked by Stan Walk, colored by Danny Vazo, and lettered by Todd Klein. This issue was edited by Karen Berger, assisted by Alisa Quitney. Cover by Dave McKean. We write our names in the sand, and then the waves roll in and wash them away. Time to wake up. In August, we begin with a cold open on a dark night. A 16-year-old boy fights back tears. Then we are whisked away to a sunny day in ancient Rome, where the whistling actor Lysias makes his way up a staircase, carrying a basket in one arm and a roll of cloth in the other. In captions excerpted from Lysias' memoirs, we learn that this is a memory of a long-ago event. Lysias is now old and near death, but this is a story from his youth. He writes of his encounter with the Emperor Augustus, now dead and a god, but once known as Caius Octavianus, or Octavius, or Octavian, the leader who oversaw Rome's transformation from republic to empire after the assassination of his great-uncle Julius Caesar. The 22-year-old Lysias brings supplies needed for the Scaldrum Dodge, a Victorian term for faking the appearance of wounds and scars to make beggars seem more in need of charity. The 70-year-old Emperor Augustus applies soap and vinegar at Lysias' direction to mimic the appearance of blisters, and then the two put on ragged togas and go out to beg. Augustus asks that today he not be called Emperor. Lysias, who has dwarfism, asks that he not be called dwarf. Despite this apparent equality, though, the old man will not reveal the true purpose of this day's exercise. At least, not yet. Why would the most powerful man in the world shed his wealth and power to spend a day as an anonymous nobody? The question remains unanswered as Lysias shows Augustus the finer points of begging, and the old man recounts how his life was saved 
by a dream. The gods exist, he explains, and there are others who stand behind the gods, whom even Jupiter must own to be his superior. Then the man who read 2,000 prophecies and chose one of two futures for Rome confesses that he longs to die and be a god, for although he is the most powerful human in the world, he is plagued by nightmares. He calls for storytellers in the dead of night. One storyteller, however, is unlike any other. He is the prince of stories, Morpheus, and he arrives with his raven in possession of Augustus's greatest secret, the secret that wakes him in the night, the secret that began on a long-ago night in a faraway place when he was young and sick and his uncle Julius Caesar came into his tent. Morpheus and his raven speak no more of that, but offer something precious, a way to plan and plot for Rome's future in a way that the gods of Rome, including the former Julius Caesar, cannot see or interfere with. Morpheus and his raven depart, and now Lysias knows the purpose of this day, though still not the cause of the emperor's nightmares. This tale emerges slowly, as the two unlikely beggars sit on the steps of the Temple of Avenging Mars, watching as merchants and soldiers pass them by, some generous with their coin, some oblivious, pissing against a nearby wall and throwing their litter down as they walk. As children play with stitched leather balls and a hapless rat ventures too close to the older man, Augustus speaks of his adored uncle and adoptive father, Julius Caesar, who called him to join in an expedition. In a foreign country, in a dark tent, the teenage Octavius is not yet an emperor, not yet renamed, when he is visited by his uncle and mentor. Helpless and sick, he does not fight back. Caesar offers promises of greatness and power, and perhaps the boy thinks he is complicit. Night after night, Julius Caesar returns to the tent and the powerless adolescent. We end with Lysias as an old man, reflecting on the bargain the old emperor made. The former actor has lived to see the evil, mad, and foolish emperors who followed Augustus, and Lysias is not sure that Augustus achieved his goal for Rome. Perhaps reading prophecy, like history, is not as simple as we like to believe. All right, Elisa, here we are talking about August. Um, and what is your response to this issue? Oy vey. <laughs> uh, yeah, a big oy vey here. This was a really complicated story to summarize. And mm -hmm. um, I have left a word unsaid uh, in the summary because that was, yeah. I figured it would be a gentler way of doing it. I'm going to say that word now, um, which mm -hmm. is rape because this is, uh, that, this is a story of rape. And it's really hard for me to read right now. Um, I remember the revelation, you know, back in God knows when, <laughs> that most, I think, rapes take place between acquaintances, even yeah. close uh, people who are known well or relatives. Mm -hmm. um, and this is that kind of a story. Um you know, I, I am increasingly aware that rape can be uh, a weapon of terror. And these are dark mm -hmm. days. And even though this is yeah. a, a beautiful and complex story, there is something about this story where I was just, uh, I struggled. It, it felt less like history yeah. and more uncomfortable than I expected. 
Well, yeah. Uh, the one thing that doesn't change is um, I, I hate to call it human nature um, because I don't I, I firmly don't believe that that is our essential nature, but it is something that we do. And I hope that we can grow away from. Um, but yeah, it is a weapon of terror. Uh, and I'm not going to lie. Stories of future sexual assault are a challenge for me. I, I really struggle with calliope. Um, calliope was really hard for me to talk about. Um, this one, in addition, really hard for me to talk about because as soon as we get into that territory, um, I find myself completely shutting down to the material. And what happens is that, and, and this is kind of like a, a trauma response. I have most commonly a freeze trauma response. Everything just goes blank. Right. So uh, what I like to bring to these are is like my analysis, my understanding of story, like all of these things. And I found myself resisting interacting with this story. It's one thing to read it and to understand what's happening. But what we do is interact it, interact with it. We engage with it. And that is the challenge for me. Um there's a lot of stuff in here, I think, that is valuable. I think that there is a lot of stuff in this story uh, to enjoy. And let's not forget, like, you know, once again, I find myself in the space where I'm talking about Sandman as a trauma narrative. And one of the things that discussing trauma, talking about trauma, talking about the evil that people do um, allows us who have been through some of these experiences ourselves to process that trauma, allows us who are witnessing some terrible things happening to help process that trauma. So um, anybody who reads this gets something out of it. Um, and um and and feels good about what they get from it that's no shade like in no way am i any more virtuous than you because i can't engage with it i can't engage with it because that's my trauma response freeze right uh other people have different ways of processing that and i think that so like i guess what i'm saying is that i think that these stories are valuable i think that they absolutely have a place in our cultural lexicon i am grateful to the people who write them i have difficulty engaging with them. Um, and that is just something that I wanted to say before we move into this episode where talking about this may be a little bit of a struggle, you know, for me to do so. And given all of the things that we are witnessing, it is also, you know, my wish for anybody listening to this to practice a little self-care. If this is not a discussion that you can listen to right now, shut it off. Come back for the next one, which I'm sure will be a lot more fun. <laughs> um, and for those of you who need to talk about these things in order to process them, but Elisa and I, because of the way in which we're reacting to it, don't hit those things. You know, if you're a Patreon supporter, come into the Discord chat. Uh, go ahead and put the content warnings in and have the discussion if you need it. Um, talk about it with your friends. Uh, read this with people who will be able to interact with it with you. Um, but we are going to move through this and, and have this discussion. And that's it. I think, you know, there are wonderful things to say. I, I think there are, you know, there there are good and and. Great things yes, to say. Absolutely. I, you know, I, I do really enjoy tales of the ancient Romans. And mm -hmm. um, so we can we can talk about let's let's start with Dave McKean's cover. As as always, let's start with the incredible Dave McKean. Uh, the cover for August is a line drawing of two men, one naked, one in a low draping toga with a blue image of a male chest with shadowed hands touching them. And it is. Oh, God. I mean, it is a really incredibly deeply felt 
piece of art, especially because like when you look at it and you're like, okay, and then you read it and then you go back and look at that cover again, it has, you know, a context in it that I think is, is very much a part of the imprint that those hands leave on that body even after they're long gone. Um, and so for me, like I felt that deeply. Yeah, beautifully put. And um, I also want to talk about Brian Talbot's art here, obviously, Brian yes. Talbot and Stan Walk. But um, one of the things that I, I, I've been teaching um, a short story class uh, mm -hmm. and, you know, I talked about world building and exercises to get people world building. And one of them is imagine a scene as if you're describing it to an artist who's going to have to draw it. Because here we have Brian Talbot wonderfully bringing ancient Rome to life. You know, he is capturing these great details of haggling in the marketplace and geese and, and you know, all people from many different walks of life, often from the waist down, which is lovely. The deliberate use of a lot of whites uh, to give that feeling of uh, the world that mm -hmm. I think What's what's the uh, line, the classic line of uh, Augustus that he found Rome in brick and left it clad in marble? Yeah. Um, the there's wonderful visual nuance here. Uh, I was rereading the Sandman Companion for insights, and uh, Neil points out that the shadows move from left to right and they lengthen the clean steps of the temple where the you know, the pair are sitting, um, accumulate mm -hmm. garbage as the day goes on. Mm -hmm. And Neil beautifully puts that it helps the reader subliminally hear the clock ticking. Both the, Oh, that is beautiful. Yeah, you know, like both yeah. the passage of the day and also of this sense of um, history, you know, that this is how yeah. history passes, you know, one minute after the other. Uh, the other mm -hmm. thing I want to mention about Brian Talbot is that he almost always includes rats in his work. He, uh, I yeah, guess, he certainly did. <laughs> so I guess maybe this should be in Lucien's library, but I have other things to say there. Mm -hmm. He yeah. uh, was, for many years, he kept rats, um, which are intelligent and make great pets. And, mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, the destruction of a rat would have been a bit tender for him, um, as oh, we, we see in yeah. this. Uh, but I'll say more about Brian Talbot and rats in Lucien's library. Ooh, nice little tease. Um, all right. So I I would like to start with my like one of my favorite things about this entire story. And we have our um, kind of our our host. It almost feels like a host to this story, right? It is, it is Octavian, Augustus, whatever you want to call him, Caius, his story, right? Um, but it is being told um, through the lens of Lysias, who is this actor that is brought in. Um, and I love that you know, he is well aware of the gulf in social status with Augustus. He is well aware of Augustus's power. And just in case he wasn't, Augustus does that demonstration with the rat to be sure that Lysias is properly afraid of him. Right. Um, which I found really like an interesting demonstration. Um but I love that moment where, you know, Augustus keeps correcting him and saying, call me Caius, call me Caius. Today I am Caius, right? And then he calls Lysias dwarf. And Lysias looks at the emperor and says, call me Lysias. 
And first of all, I love that reflection that both of them get to define their identities. Um, but I also love that here we have this, um, you know, this guy who, you know, because of a circumstance of birth is put in this position where nobody puts on airs with him. And he sees the truth of everyone because no one cares about him enough to try to like impress him or put on airs. And so having him in that position to be telling the story of what's going on, I thought was just a really wonderful thing. Um, and here we are like once again, showing the way society is, but not rubber stamping it, giving Lysias his humanity, his autonomy in this moment. And in the end, when in a story where we're talking about the power of stories, who tells the story? Mm -hmm. Not August. Lysias tells the story. And so all of that together, um, probably one of my favorite elements in, in this particular issue. Yes. And I have more to say about Lysias in Lucien's library. All right. Well, then we will just keep skipping through uh, the notes here. Um, I liked the mystery of Augustus's plan, right? He knew of two futures, one where the Roman Empire would flourish, take over the entire world, and one where it would eventually topple and die out. Um, and he chose the one we can you know, presume by the way he chose the people that would follow him, uh, the one where it would topple. And then you have to ask the question, like, why? Why did he do that? According to Dream, all leaders, emperors become gods and go to the dreaming when they die. So it stands to reason that there he would have the opportunity to see Julius Caesar again. And I'm wondering if that's why he chose the future to topple um, so he could finally win against his uncle? Like, is this a revenge story? I don't know. I mean, if you read through 2,000 prophecies, presumably mm. he was, you know, wargaming out the long, you know, the, yeah. the, the long stretch of this. And, you know, even though he oversaw the, the shift from republic to empire, to imperial mm -hmm. Rome, maybe he, you know, saw that it would just get worse that if you aggregate this much power into one person, you know, the future does get worse and worse. I, you know, I think it's really fascinating when we write about the past, uh, when we talk about mm -hmm. the past, we're always talking about the present moment. Oh, yeah. And um, I think that I'm trying to, who is, was it, was Clinton president when this was written? I think so. Oh, uh, yeah, I think so. This was uh, early 90s. Yeah. So I think I personally am far more conscious now than I was then that if you oh, yeah. allow when someone you like is in power, if you allow that position to become too unchecked, then you will be up shit creek when someone you don't like is in power and that, mm -hmm. you know, the price that we pay for, you know, trying to safeguard the future is making sure that, you know, people don't wield unchecked power, even when the person mm -hmm. in power is someone you like, you know, affecting decisions that you approve of. Exactly. And I think that there is power is inherently corruptive. You know, like that is what is going to happen. Even good people with too much power, um, I think, will fall to that power 
to some degree, at least, if not incredibly, you know. Maybe. I, I don't know if it corrupts everybody, but I do think the mm-hmm. idea that... I think unchecked too much. Mm. I can't imagine anybody who would become who would be uncorrupted by that. I always go back to the ring race um, from the Lord of the Rings, mm-hmm. um, that these are men who, above all... Um, sought power, right, and and wanted that, and in the process of doing that, became these horrible monsters that only cho- like did everything they did to to get more power and almost have nothing else to them. And so when I look at like a lot of our representatives in the United States, a lot of our p- politicians, I just see ring race everywhere, you know. Um, and I think that I I. I do not believe that we should, any of us anywhere, anywhere in the world, have systems where power is unchecked by and should be checked by people that are affected you okay. know, by what's going on. Like, there's a lot. Yeah. So here is a place where I think it's really important to look at our decisions to put clothing on dogs. I just <laughs> I just want to oh, say, I, I know this is yeah. going to be controversial, but I'm just going to say it. They, they mm-hmm. really don't like wearing clothing. <laughs> and, you know, sometimes you might be putting a shirt on them because it's orange so they won't be mistaken by a hunter. But if you're consistently putting your dog, who really doesn't have a lot of say, in cute costumes, mm-hmm. I just – and again, I know I'm being controversial here, Lonnie, but I – I wonder if it isn't to some extent an abuse of power. I think that sometimes it is. I think that sometimes it is. I, I think that there are circumstances in which dogs, like if you're in an extremely cold environment and you put a jacket or wrap a blanket around a dog, like that's different. Absolutely. But it's when you're putting them in like Halloween costumes yes, yes. and stuff like that, that I think that maybe the there are. The Grinch antlers. Like the point is that the Grinch's right. dog doesn't like the antlers. Doesn't like the antlers. And maybe some people, like maybe they have animals that do enjoy the thing. but the whole thing is is that like every bit of power you have we should all be trained to question our own power question at every it. turn because this is the kind of thing that can get out of control um but moving into like some of the other things while we're talking about unchecked power and the horrible horrible things that it does um here we come back to, and again, like I brought this up at the beginning, um, how we're once again in a trauma narrative. And this is something that, like, I have to say, like, even though this particular issue was very difficult for me to engage with, I think that the ways in which Sandman itself discusses trauma, like this spectrum of trauma from so many different angles um, and really dives deep into that. I was I was talking about this on social media not too long ago about how fiction writers, when they write about trauma, like what you are doing, like you're a superhero, you are allowing people to engage with something that they might be able to engage with when they cannot engage with their actual reality mm. um, and help them process their their trauma in a lot of ways. And so I think that like, again, while I can't engage with this, other people with similar traumas might need this story, might need to see this story, might get like a real value, a real healing value out of it. You know, but here we have, you know, um, this man, you know, Augustus, who is still a boy. Like he is frozen in the moment of that abuse at the hands of his uncle. And that happens when a traumatic event happens. There is a part of you that is forever frozen as the person you were 
when it happened. Mm-hmm. Um, so like that, the fact that he like here he is, you know, aged, gone through a whole life and he is still every night having that. And oh, my God. OK, can I just say how much I love that he calls for the storytellers? Because I do that every night when I go to sleep. If I go to sleep without um, a, like a podcast playing or an audiobook or something in like, you know, putting the words in my head, my brain will start rumbling around. I mean, it's not, honestly not even it's not even all trauma. Believe it or not, there are other things in my life aside from trauma. But when we're talking about Sandman, I'm going to end up talking about trauma a lot because fucking hell, this is amazing. The work that's being done here. Um but like I will like I have a book I'm working on right now. If I try to go to sleep without having a storyteller in my head, right, you know, um, then I will absolutely start grinding the story and thinking about that. And I'll be up until four in the morning. So the idea that he calls for the storytellers and I'm like, that is exactly what I do every time I reach for my phone at night and I put on my little you know, eye covers with the with the uh, speakers in them, with the headphones in them. Um, one of the things that I absolutely loved, and of course, stories being everything, and then Dream, you know, the king of stories, shows up, starts to tell him the tale of his own abuse and assault. That is such a common therapeutic technique. Go into the story, tell your story, tell me what happened, you know, like control that story. It's such a difficult thing to do, but on the other side of it, you really can't come out of it. So here we have Dream showing up, offering therapeutic help to this guy, Mm. and the guy absolutely refuses it. Okay, I don't know if this version of Morpheus is really doing it therapeutically. I don't think that he means Uh, to do it therapeutically, but that is a therapeutic technique. Oh, it is, but I kind (laughs) of think of it's more like, listen to me, I know everything about you and I am supernatural. And, you know, I, I think, he right. would, you know, I am not sure that this version of Sandman would make such a good therapist. And I, I, I don't think probably not, yeah. you know, but, but that through line that rulers who have experienced what it's like to be powerless, make yeah. better rulers includes, you know, Augustus, Norton, mm-hmm. And and eventually Morpheus himself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I think so. Um, and I just I find it so interesting, though, that he is coming in and using that story, mm. telling that story. You know, this one story that is the one that August cannot get past. Um, and he stops him. August stops Morpheus before he can finish telling the story. Before he can process the trauma, he refuses because his focus is on revenge. He is not interested in healing. So this is... A story about the active refusal to heal from a trauma and rather he re-engages in that trauma all the time and inflicts it on other people. Because here he is talking to Elisha, how many people have I killed or caused to be killed? I've lost count, right? So he is passing that trauma along. He is in that process of doing that. And I just found that to be a really kind of interesting moment. And I think the two paths that Augustus could have taken are reflected here. It's not between these two futures. It's between the pursuit of healing versus the pursuit of revenge. That's what I'm taking from it. That is really interesting. I read it differently. I didn't think that he was necessarily passing his trauma on, Mm -hmm. except that when you, I mean, my take was that when you are in a position of power, there is no way to act that doesn't result in some blood being on your hands. Mm -hmm. And that, you know, by 
it's like there's that philosophical question of if there were a train and you had the switch and if you do nothing, the train's Mm going to hit 20 people. But if you do, you know, you pull it and divert it, you will actively kill one person and save the other, you know, 19. Mm -hmm. And I always think that there is something about that thought exercise that must be like what it is to be in a leadership role. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, I can't even begin to imagine. Anyway. All right. (laughs) And on that Um, note. (laughs) On that note. Dogs. pull out of that. In pajamas. (laughs) Dogs. Dogs. In Grinch costumes. I speak Uh, out against it. (laughs) So we have a little bit of world building here, which I really like. Um, Augustus talks about how people follow leaders and leaders follow their dreams. And then when they die, they become gods who then live in the dreaming. Um, And I'm kind of interested in how this this interacts with creativity because creativity is the ability to imagine something into existence. This always blows my mind, right? Look around you, wherever you are now, anything that is not nature is something that came into existence because someone imagined that it could. Like that is mind blowing when you think about it. Okay. So I am looking at this. This is not in the notes, uh, my notes at least, Mm -hmm. but I have read, um, somewhere, a bunch of analyses about the origins of creativity. And so this is not my idea, but I find it a very uh, Mm -hmm. interesting idea that the same same source through which we achieve creativity is is the origins of cruelty as well. And that if you look at animals who are capable of creative tool use, they are uh, I think also animals who are, which are capable of what what looks like cruelty. If you don't have any uh, mm-hmm. inventiveness, you're probably going to kill in straightforward ways. In straightforward, well, yeah. You know what? I can't. I, no lies detected. And it reminds me of what you were saying in the last episode, where you're talking about, um, like, if you don't have any empathy, you can't have cruelty because you can't uh, imagine yeah. how. It would feel to be on the other end of that knife. Right? Oh my god, you I'm know? repeating myself from last episode. No, 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 this no, no, is no. it. Yeah. You're you're <laughs> elaborating on yourself. Like it is like it's it's I, I think that you're in a moment where you are um having having a um a wrestling with the idea of cruelty, you know, and as are we all, right? We are all watching that happen. Um so I think that that is is such an interesting thing. And the idea that like you can't have creativity or that cruelty stems from creative thinking, right? Mm-hmm. So on the one hand, you have these beautiful things. On the other hand, you have this cruelty and darkness. Um, that power, you know, from somebody who has experienced powerlessness, you know, what does that mean? How do they navigate that space doing as little harm as possible, but knowing that you have to do a certain amount of harm in order mm-hmm. to run a country, I guess. Um but I find it so interesting in the world building um, that Augustus's evaluation of who and what leaders are, they are making the shit up as they go. And that imagination is, I think, like this wasn't explicitly said in the text, but is what gets them into the dreaming. What makes them gods in dreaming is that they can just imagine they are the people who were at the front, um, at the top, in power, who mm. just kind of like made it up and imagined when you have power 
what you imagine becomes reality. And that is really kind of the role of a god. Um, And that all to me, like that felt like a really crunchy kind of philosophical stairwell. I like that. I do think, I mean, as far as I am aware, and again, mm-hmm. my ability to to get it wrong is probably uh, limitless. Uh, <laughs> but but you you have to die in a dream in order to end up in the dreaming. Mm-hmm. So that even if you're an emperor, if you do not die in your sleep while dreaming, you don't get to remain in the dream. Oh, did I misread the world building then? Because I thought. I thought Morpheus was saying that emperors end up in the dreaming no matter what. But maybe Where they can't the, help but die in a dream to. because they're always in that creative force. So my read of that is uh-huh. that anyone we think of as a god is part of a kind of cumulative dream, a, uh-huh. a, a dream of of this is how the world is. Like, you know, like a tale of a... a a thousand and one cats, and it's yeah. mm-hmm. it's the idea that um, we dream things into existence, and that mm-hmm. what what we imagine to be true becomes part of the collective subconscious in a, a sort of Jungian mm-hmm. way. That's that's Ooh. my take on it. Um, I like it. Yeah, I think I'm. I think I misread maybe that part of the world building. I'm absolutely certain there are going to be people in the Discord, and please come in and correct me all day long because I love it. Um, but yeah, like I, I think I maybe I misunderstood what exactly Morpheus was saying in that dream part. I know that that Octavius was saying that when he dies, he becomes a god. Um, but yeah. It's, I think there's a little stuff like Sandman. The world building of it is interesting. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I think that there's these two different threads: mm-hmm. one of Roman mythology, dead emperors become gods, and the other of Sandman mythology uh, and the right. collective unconscious. So, I think you've you've done something interesting with it. I don't know if it's I canon. Don't know if, it's, if it's canon, yeah, it might not be it's canon. canon it's it's but... what I read into this. Um, all right. So before we move on to Lucian's library, though, I got to talk about, I, you know how I love me a raven. I love Aristeus, me a raven. Aristeus, Aristeus, Aristeus. When I first read it, I was thinking of Aristeus that attacked Eurydice and caused all of that stuff in the Song of Orpheus, not realizing that this was an entirely different being. <laughs> so who is Aristeus? Okay, and I have gotten a little nervous because I went on to my, you know, let me remind myself, who are you, right? Aristeus of Marmora? <laughs> and um, so I believe th- that he was, uh, he he's sort of a person who's partially historical and partially mm-hmm. legendary. And, and this right. is my understanding. Uh, you've got 7th century BC, but then I saw some stuff that suggests... I, I, I'm, I'm a little I, confused. Okay, let me see. That's when I looked it up because I was confused and I was like, who is who here? Oh, maybe I've got the wrong. Is there an Aristeus? And there's then there's, there's Aristeus with a U. There's Aristeus with an A. Aristeus was clearly like the name Frank, you know, back in the day. It clearly was because we have gotten confused, but now we have, have laid it all out because in the actual text... Of the comic, it says Aristeus of Marmora. So I went online and I looked up Aristeus and there was a page in Wikipedia that said he was a 7th century Greek poet and then specifically referenced Sandman, saying he was the first raven in Sandman. 
but that is incorrect and somebody needs to go and edit Wikipedia. It might be me later, depending on whether I get the time. Um, but it's actually referring to Aristeus of Marmora, who was active, I believe, um, based on, again, another Wikipedia article, which apparently are not always accurate, uh, second to third century. Yes. Yeah, so I actually mm-hmm. did look at some other sources. Um, and mm-hmm. unless I'm messing up here, always a possibility because I did look I did look past the Wikipedia. I went, I did a little <laughs> deep dive um, just because mm-hmm. I, I felt um, that wash of adrenaline fearing that this yeah. very thing would happen while we were podcasting. So anyway, I think Aristeus of Marmora, if I've got clear, you know, again, that like, you are everyone correct. The I text know, here says Aristeus of Marmora. Okay. So I just want to say that, you know, it's like the names I've been joking with a friend of mine that everyone I know seems to be called Jeff, Mark, or Bill. And, (laughs) you know, and so it leads to a lot of confusion. And I think Aristeus is also one of those names. Um, But if I am correct in my looking up, um, Aristeus of Marmora was Jewish as well as Alexandrian uh, Mm -hmm. in the realm of of the Ptolemies. And um, I believe the author of, and again, this could be different, different Aristeus. Aristeus is, he was a legendary, you know, person as well who died and then came back to his body and then became a raven. There's some mm-hmm. whole page with like people spotting Aristeus, you know, in the 1600s, in the 1800s. And I think that he is part of that legend of the wandering so, Jew. So wait, outside of Sandman mythology. Yes. There was mythology that Aristeus became a raven. Yes. I think so that's where raven this, of Apollo. is this where the idea started? A raven of uh, the raven of Apollo. Yes. And Apollo is often confused with Morpheus or in the in which the is story Neil's, of Sandman, which is Neil's uh, creation. That, right. as he, yes. yes, his his addition to the mythology is that people often think they're talking about Apollo, but it's it's uh, it, it, at times it is Morpheus. All right. I love it. I love all of that. Uh, so, again, I may be. Be- conflating different Aristeuses. I have, I just clapped for no good reason. I don't know why, because I'm just <laughs> nervous. Um, I think that there, there may be, I, I seem to remember in years past, because Aristeus also had this reputation as a magician. Mm-hmm. I will mention that in that legend of the wandering Jew, there is a, a little bit of Maybe more than a little bit of anti-Semitism. The idea, mm-hmm. I think, that there's, you know, an eternal punishment that you have to wander and that you deserve the wandering because you did a thing and now you mm-hmm. wander. But I I think that what is fascinating to me about all of this is that, you know, here we've got all of these threads of actual history of ancient mythologies woven together here mm-hmm. and it it is part of what makes the sandman feel so very rich it absolutely does and now i believe i am hearing the music to introduce us into lucian's library so elisa what do you have for us in the background of this issue so first of all the source um the neil's original source for this back before wikipedia and the internet (laughs) was the translation of the 12 caesars uh robert graves the poet uh wrote that translation and it was written by suetonius 
who was born around 70 AD and was a secretary to Emperor Hadrian. Mm. And that's the source for also this idea that everyone born of noble birth was forbidden to enter the acting profession except for Lysias. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and so that's Suetonius as well. Robert Graves, by the way, I don't know if people read him as much now. So he also wrote the book I, Claudius, about a different mm -hmm. emperor, which became this great BBC miniseries back yeah. when I was a kid. And I remember watching PBS and the whole, you know, Messalina naughtiness um, with, mm -hmm. if you, anyway, it was, it was a <laughs> lot of fun. And I think had a, a really, really young Patrick Stewart in it. Maybe he even had mm -hmm. hair. I'm not sure. Ooh. Well, Patrick Stewart is always fun. <laughs> oh, and I should just mention here that I keep hearing everyone with their British accents because as anyone who's a fan of ancient Rome knows, uh, people either spoke with uh, RP, yeah. you know, upper class British exactly. accents yes. or, you know, the foot soldiers spoke Cockney. Uh, <laughs> You know, that is that is the way it was in ancient Rome. Absolutely. Historically accurate. I am absolutely certain. <laughs> so let's talk about some rats. Give me the additional context for the rat discussion, because I'm fascinated by this. OK, um, so Brian Talbot was uh, a fan of rats. He there is a, a kind of rat, a hooded rat. I believe they're white with sort of a mm -hmm. brown hood, very attractive markings. Those were the rats he had. He mm -hmm. wrote a book that he also illustrated called A Tale of One Bad Rat. Mm -hmm. This was um, also a story of um, a survivor of sexual assault, of rape. Um, mm -hmm. But it is an uplifting tale. It is so beautiful, both in terms of the story and the art, uh, a bit of a take on Beatrix Potter's work. And of course. You know, when I think about stuff I know, because I am not as young as I used to be, and things that I think deserve to be much better known than they are, A Tale of One Bad Rat is, it's self-contained, it is just wonderful, and even though the subject matter is disturbing, there's nothing graphic that's shown, and it's about becoming a survivor and overcoming trauma, and I... Uh, just think everyone ought to read it and, you know, be fonder of rats. Rats are wonderful. <laughs> you can keep your gerbils. You can keep your hamsters and your guinea pigs. If I were going rodent, it would be rat all the way. Brian did stop keeping rats because he said it was just too painful. Their life spans are not so long and it's, it's Right. Hard so that they... is a frequent hit of grief that you yeah. need to, to yeah. work through. That's a lot. Yeah. Yeah. I remember my kids wanting rats and I have never been a huge fan. And then they we went to a pet store and they were like, oh, God, look at the rats. And I was like, something is wrong with that rat. And they were like, no, that's just the testicles. The testicles are just huge. Their testicles guys. are enormous. I mean, they're, they're enormous. So they drag on the ground. And they're also shaped like they're poop. Yeah. They are shaped like yeah. dirigibles. It's super duper Pointy. weird. Um, and I'm, you know, and I'm saying if, if you can give love to a rat, give love to a rat. I think I'm, I think I'm not, I'm not a rat person. But if human okay. males had testicles that were proportionate to them, the way male rats have testicles. They would be dragging on the ground as well. They would require, yeah, complete, like little They would have trolleys. to, uh, they would have to have the whole underwire thing going on. That I have to deal with, that you have to deal with. Um, so yeah, let me just let me just leave y'all with that 
lovely picture. And let's move on to talking about Terminus. So I was thinking about Terminus. Uh, you know, one of the things that struck me more, and I, I guess we'll talk about this with favorite part, was the role yeah. of Terminus, who is the mm-hmm. god who asks Morpheus to appear to uh, Octavius, to Augustus. Mm-hmm. And I just thought, I wonder, you know, if there's been a poem or something about Terminus and found it. And it's Ralph Waldo Emerson. I'll just read the very beginning. It is time to be old, to take in sail. The God of bounds who sets to seas ashore came to me in his fatal rounds and said, no more. No farther shoot thy broad, ambitious branches and thy root. Fancy departs, no more invent. Contract thy firmament to compass of a tent. Wow. I like it. (laughs) (laughs) All right. That's Terminus by Ralph Waldo Emerson. I'm absolutely certain that that is out there for people to find. Yeah. From from rat balls to, uh, you know, some romantic poetry. We have a wide range of discussion (laughs) topics here on Endless. All right, Elisa, what is your favorite art from this issue? I love the page where the two unlikely beggars sit and talk and there's a man pissing against the wall and it's just done discreetly but clearly. It's just Mm -hmm. some fine-ass storytelling and world building. Oh, absolutely. I mean, talk about environment, right? You just can be right there with them. Um, I have to say, like, I absolutely adored the shattered glass aspect of Mm. the pages where dream visits augustus right beautiful um you have these really sharp edges and everything at these really sharp angles in the panel work um it's all blue and black and white which i absolutely love of course there's a raven when am i not gonna love if there's a raven on the page it's gonna be my favorite page cannot help it that is just who i am um so i thought that the art on that and especially that two-page spread like if you just look at that two-page spread it is so fantastic so incredible i absolutely just could just stare at that all day absolutely beautiful um so what's your favorite part of the story i think the revelation in the story that it's the god of boundaries and limits Mm -hmm. that asks Morpheus to tell Augustus how to foil the gods and set a limit on the Roman Empire. I like it. Yeah, that was a really great moment. Um, And again, once again, I I love the way that Neil pulls all of this like very deep, this deep, he pulls from this deep well of story and mythology, but he'll just like touch it. And he'll be like, oh, there you go. And then, like, you can go down that rabbit hole should you choose, you know. Um, And if you do, you will find things there. He doesn't just make something up, throw it on the page and be like, you know, whatever. Um, He actually, like, pulls in just a tiny little thread. And again, it's like that magpie thing, right? You know, you go out, the magpie, again, is this real i don't know but like you grab a sparkly thing you weave it in and then you just leave it there and it's just that tiny little bit of sparkle um but the thing is is that inevitably even though wikipedia is sometimes wrong and even though i am sometimes a little lazy in my research um (laughs) it is wonderful whenever something's mentioned on a page in sandman and i go out to the wilds of the internet to try to find where that sparkly thread come from it's always attached to a deep well of knowledge and mythology and history and all of that stuff. Absolutely love that. Um, but I have to say, like, for me, my favorite part was Call Me Lycius. Was when was when Lycius was like, 
I know that we are equals. You may not know that, but I know that I have value, human value equal to yours. You may have more power than me. You may have a Mm. higher social status, but we are equals. And there's something about that um, that I just really, really loved because that is a daring moment for Lysias. But he does it. He claims his humanity in the face of this emperor that could kill him in a heartbeat. And I just, I absolutely loved it. I want to see him again. I want Lysias to come back. All right. If you enjoyed this discussion and would like to join in, Patreon supporters can chat with us and each other through our Patreon Discord channel. To find out how you can support Chipperish Media, visit patreon.com slash chipperish. Other ways to show your support, write a great review on Apple Podcasts, tell your friends about the show, or plan your course on that day when the gods will not be watching. Thanks so much for joining us. We will be back next time with The Hunt, number 38. Doggy style! Until then, everybody loves you. Well, maybe not everybody, but you're heaps better than chaos. Chaos.